Thank you. Uh, so it's going to be helpful, uh, as usual, to have your Bibles open. Uh, please can I encourage you to bring your Bibles and to uh, have them before you so you can see that what I'm saying is what God is saying. Uh, I think that's a helpful thing to do. Okay, last week, uh, we, uh, Glenn began looking at the story of Noah and the story of the flood. And we're continuing that story today, looking specifically at what happens afterwards. Uh, what happens as Noah kind of leaves the ark, as that little bit was read for us. Uh, but to do that, uh, to get our heads back into the story of Noah and the flood, I want to read you a children's book. So, uh, you know, strap in, get comfortable, uh, and enjoy, enjoy the story. Noah was God's friend. He believed what God said. God always tells the truth. One day, Noah, uh, sorry, one day, God told Noah there would be a flood. You must build a great big boat, God said. Nobody knew what a flood was, but Noah believed God. So he gathered enough wood to build a great big boat. Tap, 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 rap, rap, rap. Noah worked very hard. He made the boat just the way God told him to, for Noah believed everything God said. People came to see Noah, see what Noah was doing. When they saw the big boat, they laughed and laughed. There is no water here, they said. Where will you float your boat? Noah told the people what God said, but they did not believe. Noah went back to work. He knew what God said was true. One day the boat was finished. Now God said, I will bring two of every kind of animal to ride on the boat with you. Noah waited for the animals to come. The waddling ducks came two by two. What do the ducks say? <laughs> the spotted cows came two by two. What do the cows say? The curly pigs, uh, the curly-tailed pigs came two by two. The woolly sheep came two by two. The animals came two by two. Elephants, lions, monkeys too. Noah led them all into the boat. Bang! God shut the door. They were all safe inside. Drip, drip, drip. The raindrops fell softly. Splish, splash, splish. They made puddles on the ground. The lightning flashed, the thunder cracked, down, 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 the heavy rain fell. Noah's boat rocked, a little this way and a little that way. It was starting to float. For 40 days and 40 nights, it rained and rained and rained. The water rose higher and higher, and the big boat stayed right on top, with Noah and the animals safe inside. Then something happened. Noah listened, he did not hear the rain. Slowly, very slowly, the floodwaters dried away. And one day, the big boat landed on the top of a, mountains, of a mountain. When God said it was time, Noah let the animals out of the boat. Two by two, they marched down the mountain to look for new homes. I will never again cover the earth with water, God promised. And as a reminder, I will put a rainbow in the sky... Noah looked at the beautiful rainbow, who knew what God promised was true, and Noah was very glad he believed God. The end.
Well, as we read that book, did you notice what was missing? Anyone want to hazard a guess? What, what was missing out of the story? Yep, a few people said it. The people, God's judgment. Uh, yeah, the, the kind of crucial part of the story. Now, granted, it is a kid's book, so, you know, don't want to read into that. But the story mentions nothing of why God sent the flood in the first place. And so here's the important thing. God sends the flood because of our wickedness, because of our sin. You know, all of us have a sin problem, a problem that we can't get rid of. And so we end up hating God and hating each other. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we saw that the problem of sin began in the garden when the serpent said to Eve, did God really say you cannot eat from the tree in the middle of the garden? And from that moment on, humanity has stood over and above God's word. We have been deciding for ourselves what we think is right and what we think is wrong. And the diagnosis comes to us there in chapter 6, verse 5, which says that every, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination, only evil all the time. That's how serious the problem of sin is. Sin is an affront to God's holiness. And because God is holy, God can't let sin go unpunished. And so in an incredible turn of events, God decides to undo his creation he decreates, I don't know if that's a word, but he decreates what he first created. He undoes what he has made. And that's the bit that we never really read about in the kids' story. It, 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 it misses out the fact that sin is serious and that sin has consequences. Sin is such a serious problem that God decides to kill and destroy everything that he makes, everything that he said was once good. But in that hopelessness, there's this glimmer of hope, because there's Noah, who had found favour in the eyes of the Lord, who was righteous and blameless and walked faithfully with God. And so instead of wiping everything out in an incredible act of kindness, God instead starts again with Noah. And so we see that God is committed to his world despite our sin. And despite the fact that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, despite that, God is committed to his world. God is committed to his project of filling the earth with his image people who who bear his likeness and who will live under his rule. And in our passage today, we can see that God is committed to his world because of his commitment to his world and because of his commitment to Noah. And so we pick up the story where Noah uh, steps out of the ark and, and at the end of the flood. And the first thing that Noah does is he builds an altar to the Lord, He takes some of the animals that were on the ark and he sacrifices them to the Lord. And we can see that God is committed to his world because of what is said there in chapter 8, verse 28. If you've got your Bibles, look at that with me. Chapter 8, verse 21. 
The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures sea time and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. First thing to notice there, notice that the flood never solved our sin problem. You know, here we read after the flood that every, every inclination of the human heart is still evil from childhood. You know, the flood never actually solved the sin problem because sin is not a problem out there. Sin is a problem in here. Sin is a problem of the human heart. And yet, the good news is that despite the, the lingering and looming problem of sin, God still promises to never again destroy all living creatures. And he promises that the earth will continue, that there will be uh, sea time and harvest and summer and winter and day and night. God promises that there will still be these dependable rhythms of life that will continue despite the problem of our human hearts. See, God is committed to his world. And the fact that we can look outside and see the sun and know that the sun will set and rise again tomorrow and that following winter will come spring and then summer, because we know that, we know that God is committed to his world. See, God is so committed to this world that there is this common kindness, what theologians call common grace, that's given to all humanity. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There is this common grace that is available to all humanity despite our sin and our wickedness. And the common grace of God means that there are good people in the world. See, there are good people in the world because of God's common grace. God is so committed to his world that he restrains evil so that we aren't as bad as what we could be. There is good in this world because of God's kindness, his common grace to all. God is committed to his world, and so he blesses Noah and his family there at the start of chapter 9. And this is the third time that humanity has been blessed by God. Chapter 9, verse 1, God says, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And God will repeat that again in verse 7. And he says, what God says to Noah there is almost exactly what God said to Adam and Eve back in the garden. God is committed to his project of having his image bearers fill the earth. And the image of God comes up in verse 6. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans their blood uh, their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. God was made in the image, uh, sorry, humanity was made in the image of God. We were made to represent God to the world. You know, one of the reasons why we're not to have idols of God is because God has already put his idol in the world, which is us. Every human being is made in the image of God. And so when we look at each other, we're meant to be reminded of God. It's like when you look at a coin 
and you see the picture of the king or the queen on it. And when you look at that, you're meant to be reminded that there is a king who rules this country. And so when we look at each other, we're meant to be reminded that there is a God who rules this world. But the problem is that sin affects and infects everything. And so while we are still made in the image of God, we don't relate to God the way that we should. It's like being a foreign diplomat. You know, a foreign diplomat represents, goes to another country, and in that other country represents their king or their country that they came from. But sometimes you hear those stories, right, of foreign diplomats who who get into trouble because they don't act the way that they should. They don't represent their country well. They're rude or they're insensitive to the culture or, or they're just kind of downright like a bit dodgy in the country. That doesn't mean that they stop being foreign diplomats. I mean, they might get home and lose their jobs. Don't push the illustration too far. But they're still like foreign diplomats. They're still meant to represent the country. And the big point I want to make is that all of us are made in the image of God. It's who we are. And here's the thing. The image has not been broken or marred or shattered. So there's this idea out there that because of sin... The image of God has been like tainted or it's been broken, kind of like a broken mirror. We don't, we don't image God properly. There's something broken there. But that's not actually true. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that the image of God has been broken or damaged in any way. Chapter 9, verse 6 is the last time that the image of God is mentioned in the Old Testament uh, before we get to the New Testament. And there's nothing here or anywhere else to suggest that the image of God is somehow broken or shattered. And so whether Christian or non-Christian, whether sinner or saint, whether perpetrator or victim, each and every person is made in the image of God. Yes, sin affects our ability to relate to God and to relate to one another, but the image itself is undamaged and unbroken. And that's not just a technical thing, that theologians in their ivory towers like to think about. No, it actually really, really matters. It matters because of verse 6. Murder is wrong because murder is to destroy another image bearer, someone that God has made and placed his image on. But if the image is broken or it's like tainted somehow, then that argument doesn't really matter. See, what do you do with something that's broken? you throw it out. You get rid of it. You replace it. And so if the image of God is something that's kind of broken or damaged in some way, then there's going to be no problems with me murdering you. No offense. But, but the image, see why it matters? The image of God really matters. And each of us have it unmarred, untainted, unbroken, unshattered. We have the image of God in all of its fullness and glory, still one of God's common kindnesses to humanity. And because each of us is made in the image of God, each person has an inherent dignity, value, and worth that they don't earn or that they can't get based on their performance. 
each person has dignity and value and worth simply because they are made in the image of God. And so we don't murder each other. Instead, we treat each other with respect and dignity. It doesn't matter who they are. Especially for us, that God does not show favoritism, and that should be true for us. It doesn't matter who someone is, we treat each other with respect and dignity because they are one of God's image bearers, just like you and me. That's a fun little detour on the image of God, uh, but the fun doesn't stop there. Because if you want more fun, then you can have this little conversation over morning tea. Uh, you, can ha- you can discuss over morning tea whether or not verse 6 allows for capital punishment. Okay, that's your discussion question for morning tea. Does verse 6 allow for capital punishment? I'm not going to answer that for you now. You can discuss that over morning tea if you want a fun topic to think about. Okay. So from now on, uh, from what we've seen, God is committed to his world uh, despite their sin. Don't think about the capital punishment now. Come back. I know I fully just distracted you all. Don't, don't move to Texas or whatever. Come back. Uh, come back. Think, think, uh, think about Noah. Think about the covenant. We've seen that God is so committed to his world despite their sin. But God is not just committed to his world generally and broadly. He's also committed himself to a particular family. Remember way back uh, in Genesis 3, God had promised that one of Eve's descendants would crush the head of the serpent. And as we read about Noah, we're meant to to wonder if this is the one that God had promised. Is Noah the one that's meant to uh, be one of Eve's descendants who's going to crush the head of the serpent? Could this be the one? And God makes this covenant with Noah and his family, and it's all looking really good. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Uh, God makes a covenant with Noah and his sons. A covenant is a contract between two groups of people. And like any contract, if you stick within the bounds of the contract, then good things will happen. And if you go outside of the contract, then bad things will happen. And the Bible uh, uses the language of blessings for keeping within the covenant and curses for stepping outside. And a covenant was often made between kings. The more powerful king would promise to look after and protect the weaker kingdom, while the weaker kingdom would pay tribute to the more powerful king. That's kind of how covenants worked. But what's surprising in the Bible is that often when a covenant is made between God and his people, it's often one-sided. God takes all of the responsibility and all of the initiative for making sure that the covenant is kept. And so when God makes his covenant with Noah, all of the responsibility lands on God's shoulders. Did you notice that as we read it, Noah doesn't have to do anything? And that 
kind of asymmetry of responsibility is exactly the point that we're meant to see. We're meant to see that God is so committed to his world and to Noah and his family that God will bear all of the responsibility for making sure that the covenant is fulfilled. And like a lot of covenants, this covenant comes with a sign. It's the rainbow. Uh, There in verse 16 we read, Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Do you notice there who the rainbow is for? You know, often we think the rainbow is for us, reminding us of God's covenant. That's kind of what the kids' book said as well. But actually, do you notice the rainbow is for God? It's meant to remind him not to flood the world again. See, all of the onus, all of the responsibility is on God. We don't have to remind God. We don't have to tell him, oh, like, you know, please don't flood the world again. No, the responsibility is on him. And he's made a sign to make sure he doesn't forget. He's God, and of course God can't forget. But it's there to to remind him and show us that he's the one who will make sure the covenant is kept. And that's a good thing, because if there's one person who will absolutely do what they promised, then it is God himself. You know, we all struggle to keep our promises. We all struggle to do what we say we'll do. But God is not like that. God will always accomplish what he said he would do. And so things look good. Perhaps Noah really is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. We've seen God is committed to his world and he's committed himself to this particular family. And and we're meant to like wonder, perhaps Noah is the one that God said would come and fix the problem of sin and Satan and the problem of our human heart. Perhaps Noah will finally fix all that is wrong. But then reality crashes back in when we realize that Noah has a heart problem too. If you go to Bibles there, have a look. This is a passage we didn't read. Look at chapter 9, uh, verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards, covering their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. It's kind of an interesting story, right? Noah plants a vineyard. He makes some wine. He gets drunk. And and he's uh, passed out naked in his tent. And his youngest son, Ham, he sees his father naked and does nothing about it. And instead, he goes and tells his older brother, uh, his older brothers, and they, they do the right thing. They walk in backwards so they don't see their father's nakedness and they cover him up. And there's two things in that story that are meant to remind us of Adam in the garden. Firstly, the connection between shame 
and nakedness. Now, Adam, in, the, in the beginning, Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. But then sin enters the world and shame begin, be, becomes this thing that now controls us and shapes our lives. And what Ham did was bring uh, dishonor and shame on Noah. Instead of helping his father, helping Noah to lessen his shame, he brought further dishonor by telling his brothers. Which brings us to the second connection with Adam. Just like Adam, Ham does nothing. In the garden, Adam should have removed the snake from the garden. He should have spoken up when Eve was speaking to the snake. He should have refused to eat the fruit, but instead he goes along with it all. Adam and Ham both fail. They do nothing, and once again, shame and disgrace blossom in a world that God had just wiped clean. And so when Noah wake, wakes up, he, he, uh, he curses Canaan, who is Ham's son. And if you thought the story of the nakedness was a bit weird, this is weird as well, because Ham doesn't get... Do you notice that Ham doesn't get cursed? It's actually his son. And when we read these sorts of like, blessings and curses in the Bible, we're meant to read them as prophetic. They point forward to something that will happen. You know, no, perhaps Noah never really understood exactly what he was saying, but, it, but what he said turned out to be absolutely true. See, the descendants of Canaan would end up becoming the slaves of the descendants of Shem. The descendants of Canaan uh, became the Canaanites, and they lived in the land of Canaan, the, the promised land, the land which God was going to give to his people, the Israelites. And the Israelites, they were the descendants of Shem. And so when the Israelites come in, they take over the land, some of those Canaanites uh, become the slaves of the Israelites. And so this little prophecy here is a prophecy about how God continues to look after his chosen people. See, God is committed to his world in general, but he also commits himself to this particular family. And it's through this family that God would fully and finally and completely and wonderfully rescue humanity from the grips of sin. See, Noah wasn't the one to do it, but he points forward to the one who will. Because the problem, remember the problem, the problem is not out there, the problem is in here, a problem of the human heart. And so what we need is someone who has a pure heart, a heart without sin, someone who, who is not already stuck in the mud. You know, you can't rescue someone if you yourself need rescuing. We need someone from outside. We need someone with a pure heart and with the power to change hearts. We need Jesus. And the way Jesus rescues us is by himself being shamed. You know, Jesus comes from outside and he enters into our world and he takes on our sin and he experiences shame and humiliation. At his crucifixion, Jesus is beaten and spat on and mocked and he's stripped naked and he's nailed to a cross. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, naked, publicly exposed to the world, he does what Noah could never do. He exchanges his pure heart 
for our sinful hearts. And so in Jesus, there really is a fresh start. In Jesus, we are new creations. Our hearts really are wiped clean. The old is gone, the new is here, says 2 Corinthians 5. You know, the flood was only ever a snapshot of what God would do for us on the inside. And so when we come to Jesus, the good news is that Jesus is not ashamed of us. He took our sin. He knows our sin. And so as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Now, Jesus is the one with the pure heart who exchanges his heart for ours, who makes us clean, who rescues us and saves us and transforms us and liberates us and purifies us. You know, all of us, I'm sure, have things in our lives that we are deeply ashamed of. You know, people that perhaps we see and, and were instantly reminded of that thing that we did. Situations, perhaps, that we walk into that reminds us of what we've done. And shame is this social category. You don't... You can feel shame by yourself when you're alone, but the shame is often most prominent when you are with other people. Other people remind us of what we've done, perhaps of a life that we've tried to leave behind. And shame can get to us, even when we're by ourselves. In the darkest places... It reminds us, it creeps in and reminds us of the sort of person that we used to be or perhaps still are, the sort of person that we perhaps don't want to be. But there is one person, there is one person in the universe who will never be ashamed of you. And so if you're feeling ashamed about the things you've said or the things that you've done then turn to Jesus. Jesus knows who you are. He knows what you've done, and yet despite it all, he is still committed to you. He is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister, and so go to him. The story of Noah points us forward to what God will do in Christ. The flood, the story of Noah, it shows us the seriousness of sin, the consequences of sin. It shows us, though, that God is committed to his world despite it all. And through the line of Noah, through the line of Shem, comes the Lord Jesus, who enters into our world, takes our pain, takes our sin, takes our shame, nailing it to the cross, himself becoming a public spectacle, and liberating us, giving us new hearts. In Christ, the old is gone and the new is here. Praise God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus.
We thank you that in him we are new creations. Thank you that in him the old is gone and the new is, is here. Lord, we pray that the shame that cripples us and hurts us and paralyzes us, that that would be taken away in Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for him that in Jesus we can feel no shame because he's not ashamed of us. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our sins. Please take away uh, our shame and guilt. Please help us to live as those new creations that you have made us to be. Amen.